On this episode of the McGill International Review, I'm joined by Thomas Graham, a distinguished fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations and a former senior director for Russia in the National Security Council staff during the George W. Bush administration. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Graham. You're certainly welcome. Glad to be here with you. To begin, could you briefly describe the recent tensions between the United States and Russia over NATO's eastern expansion and especially over Ukraine's possible membership? Well, Moscow has been concerned for some time by the expansion of Euro-Atlantic institutions uh, eastward since the, since the end of the Cold War in 1991. Russia believes that uh, the expansion of NATO in particular has encroached upon what Russia sees as its uh, as its security perimeter. Perimeter. Russia historically has always uh, sought what we would call a buffer zone, strategic depth, uh, as a way of protecting itself from foreign invasion. Uh, and with good reason, it has been uh, invaded uh, over the centuries with devastating effect. Napoleon uh, in the in the 19th century, Hitler in the 20th century, for example, uh, <clears throat> and so. Russia believes that uh, with the possibility of the expansion of NATO uh, into Ukraine, uh, that, you, 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 uh, that NATO really has crossed the line. It's the former Soviet state that is of greatest potential after Russia itself. Historically, it has been an important element of the Soviet Union, the Russian Empire before that, uh, and has been uh, also something of a buffer zone for Russia. Uh, so Russia is determined to prevent that from happening. Uh, and that lies behind its efforts uh, over the past several months to force the United States uh, to sit down in a negotiation over the future of NATO and Europe. So Ukraine is an important buffer zone for the security of Russia, but why would it be such an advantage to the Western bloc for Ukraine to join NATO? Well, uh, you know, there is a debate in, in, in NATO as to whether it would be of such an advantage to uh, NATO to have Ukraine as a member. Uh, when this issue came up uh, in earnest in 2008, uh, there was a summit in Bucharest uh, where the United States was pressing uh, for what we call a membership action plan, a program uh, that would lay out to Ukraine the concrete steps it needed to take uh, in order to uh, reach NATO membership at some point in the future. Uh, France and Germany uh, resisted that quite uh, quite vigorously. Uh, and what they compromised on was a statement that said, we're not going to give uh, Ukraine and Georgia uh, membership action plans, but we, we are willing to say that Ukraine and Georgia will eventually become members of NATO. Now, very little has been done uh, to actually advance the goal of Ukrainian membership in NATO over the past a uh, decade and a half. In fact, if you talk to uh, American officials, NATO officials in private, uh, they will say that Ukraine's membership in NATO uh, is not going to happen for years and not decades to come, but perhaps never. Uh, so there continues to be uh, discussion within NATO as to whether uh, Ukraine as a mem member actually enhances uh, NATO's uh, security and prosperity or not. Now, the reason why you might want to include NATO, excuse me, you include Ukraine in NATO has to do with the, uh, the development of a stable uh, security environment uh, 
in in Europe. The advance to become part of NATO, uh, Ukraine would have to uh, adopt certain democratic practices. Uh, it would have to uh, ensure civilian control over the mil military. Uh, it would have to be integrated uh, fully into sort of the political affairs of Europe. Uh, and many people see this as a sort of an extension of the prosperity and security uh, of Europe at this point farther east, which would only uh, further enhance that security and prosperity. Uh, that's the argument for uh, bringing Ukraine into NATO. But as I said uh, before, there are many people who actually feel the contrary. So then, although it's controversial, both sides are interested in Ukraine for security purposes, which has obviously caused rising tension um, in both blocs. So in a 2019 interview, you stated personally believing it was possible for relations between Russia and the United States to improve. Do you still support this view or have recent events pushed you towards new perspectives considering the deteriorating situation? Well, this is a very complicated uh, issue. First, let me start by saying that there is an inherent rivalry between the United States uh, and Russia uh, that grows out of differing worldviews, differing uh, geopolitical interests, uh, diverging systems of values that inform the domestic political structure. This is not something that's new in U.S.-Russian relations. In fact, if you look at the history uh, of uh, our relationship, from the moment the United States emerged as a major power on the global stage at the very end of the 19th century, U.S.-Russian relations have been competitive by and large. There are very few periods uh, when we've had a largely cooperative rela relationship, uh, and those were quite limited. Uh, people uh, point to the cooperation uh, during the Second World War, for example, against, uh, against Nazi Germany. Uh, even then, if you look at that, uh, the cooperation wasn't as um, as intense as one might expect. Uh, we fought on different fronts, uh, and once the the victory was uh, assured, uh, we broke up into two camps that eventually led to a cold war that lasted for uh, 40, 40 to 50 years. So what we're seeing today is not an aberration uh, in, in U.S.-Russian relations. Uh, in general, although I think you could say that the intensity uh, perhaps is somewhat unusual. And what I was saying in, in 2019 is that I think it's possible uh, to develop a relationship that is uh, marked by much less animosity than the one we have today. Uh, we built on the assumption that despite the differences between the two countries, uh, we bear responsibility uh, for maintaining strategic nuclear stability. Uh, that is, we want to prevent the uh, the outbreak of a nuclear war, which would have catastrophic results for the United States and Russia, indeed for the entire world. Uh, in other words, peaceful coexistence uh, is, an is essential at this stage uh, in, in global affairs. Second, it's also possible to find ways uh, to compete in a more responsible or constructive fashion uh, so that you reduce the risk of military conflict between our two countries with the ever-present threat or risk of escalation to the nuclear level. Uh, and then finally, there are indeed a number of transnational uh, issues, climate change, for example, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, uh, international terrorism, 
uh, transnational crime, uh, pandemics, for example, where cooperation between Russia and the United States would be beneficial to both countries. And indeed, you can't imagine solving these problems over the long run without cooperation between the United States and Russia, uh, and also with other major powers around the world. So the point that I was making in 2019, and I hold to it firmly today, uh, is it is despite the rivalry, it's possible to think of a better, more constructive relationship uh, that allows the two countries um, to compete uh, in a relatively stable, predictable fashion, uh, which reduces the risk uh, of a unwanted war between our two countries. Right. So cooperation is definitely a possibility between these two states. But um, you mentioned that the intensity has been rising in comparison to recent years um, as of now. Do you believe we're headed towards a hot war or some sort of new cold war, if any war at all? Well, you know, I don't know uh, if we're necessarily he headed towards either one of those uh, at this point. Much will depend on how things play out over the next several weeks. Uh, clearly, uh, the United States is worried about a major uh, Russian military uh, incursion into Ukraine. We, uh, Washington has been talking about that since the fall. Uh, uh, so there is a potential for, for military uh, conflict. At the same time, uh, the United States is also engaged in a, uh, in a fairly intensive diplomatic effort uh, with Russia. Uh, We've seen the exchange of positions, uh, written positions. The Russians released uh, two draft treaties back in December that laid out what they saw as the, the requirements for Russian security um, that would be legally or guaranteed by the West. Uh, the United States responded earlier this week uh, with an offer of negotiations over arms control, excuse me, confidence building measures, uh, but it has clearly indicated that it's not prepared to negotiate what, what one of Russia's chief demands, which is no further expansion of NATO. Uh, so uh, we have a diplomatic process. The two sides are, are far apart, uh, but by no stretch of the imagination uh, have I given up at diplomacy at this point. So it's possible to foresee a, uh, a future where we manage to diffuse uh, the current crisis, uh, where we go back to a competitive relationship that is conducted uh, in a more constructive uh, and responsible fashion, which wouldn't be a cold war. Uh, it would look like uh, a competition among great powers throughout history. Um, that said, if we make mistakes, we could have a deep cold war. If we blunder in a major way, but it's also possible to imagine a hot war. Uh, now, the only thing I would uh, point out here is that uh, you know a hot war comes with incredible risks. Uh, a major European conflict uh, would have ripple effects across the globe. Uh, it's far from certain uh, that you could keep that below the nuclear level. Uh, and if it rose to the nuclear level, uh, then you are risking uh, the destruction of, of human civilization as we know it. You know, I like to say uh, if the leaders of the United States and Russia blunder into a major war in Europe, but they won't have to worry about the judgment of historians because there won't be any historians left to write it. 
Definitely. So the cost of war is definitely very high for literally every single state in the international sphere right now, which explains why the United States and Russia have both insisted their will to avert war. But some critics point out that their actions sometimes seem incompatible with this statement. So as you mentioned, Moscow has amassed an alarming number of forces at the Ukraine-Russia border. On top of that, like you said as well, Putin recently publicized two draft treaties whose terms include bans on further NATO expansions and bans on U.S. security cooperation with ex-Soviet states, two terms that they know the West will not accept. Meanwhile, the Biden administration and allies are assembling a set of sanctions they claim would go into effect directly following an invasion of Ukraine, which vary from economic punishments to an expansion of NATO's Eastern European military presence. So would you classify these behaviors almost provocative of war? Or do you believe both sides are pushing such strict terms to purposely make negotiations fail and have a justification for moving forward with sanctions and bans? My own sense is that both sides would like to avoid war because I think they understand what the consequences of a major military conflict would be. Russia built up its forces uh, last fall to engage in what we call coercive diplomacy. Uh, That is, it wanted to grab the attention of the United States uh, and compel the United States to sit down with Russia uh, and discuss what Russia saw uh, as encroachments on its security, uh, particularly the the further expansion of NATO eastward, uh, and has maintained uh, its military along the borders with Ukraine, has engaged in military maneuvers of some sort, military exercises in Belarus uh, uh, this month, uh, in order to, I think, demonstrate to to Washington uh, that This is a big deal for Moscow, that it's serious about this. It wants to be engaged uh, on on these issues. Uh, By the same token, the United States has replied in ways uh, that indicate that um, they are prepared to put in place forces to deter Russia, uh, should it uh, launch a military operation, uh, that they're preparing devastating sanctions. And all of this is part of an effort to try to deter Russia uh, away from Uh, a military incursion into into Ukraine. So in a strange way, um, both sides are engaging in brinksmanship uh, in the hope that this will produce productive productive, uh, diplomatic talks where the outcome uh, will be favorable to both, will be favorable either to Washington or Moscow. This is not unusual uh, in global politics. Uh, But it is a very dangerous game, given the stakes uh, that we're playing for uh, and the amount of military equipment that is already on the ground uh, and could be used in a a conflict scenario. So speaking of diplomatic dialogues, throughout the past month, there have been numerous of these to try to peacefully resolve the conflict. There were bilateral talks between the U.S. and Russia, preceded by discussions between NATO and Russia and followed by dialogue between OSCE members or the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Progress seems slow throughout all talks and one Russian representative to the OSCE even labeled them really disappointing. What do you regard of these endless dialogues? If neither state wants to go into war, but no negotiations are successful. Well, you know, it it takes time and patience 
in order to conduct a serious diplomatic dialogue. Uh, the meetings uh, that were held in January of this year were really an opportunity for each side to lay out its position uh, fully uh, and try to understand uh, the position of the other side. But no one expected a breakthrough at these, uh, at these discussions. Uh, it really was an informational one. Uh, and so from that standpoint, uh, the two sides uh, came away with a better understanding uh, of what the other side was looking for, uh, perhaps a better sense of whether there was any flexibility uh, in, their, in their positions or not. Uh, you know, meetings have continued since then. Uh, you know, we have re replied in writing to Russia's demands. Uh, a, a copy of that uh, response was leaked uh, earlier this uh, earlier this week. Um, uh, but that was also part of a negotiating process. We tried to put on the table things that we thought uh, would be of interest to Russia in terms of arms control and confidence building measures, uh, steps that we were unprepared to take last fall. Uh, uh, so uh, there is something that Russia has gained already uh, in this diplomatic dialogue. The big outstanding issue uh, is the future of NATO and NATO expansion. Uh, and if we want to continue this dialogue in an effort to find a diplomatic resolution of the problem, then I believe that the, the issue of NATO expansion has to be put on the table in some fashion. Doesn't mean that we have to say explicitly uh, that it's an issue of NATO expansion, but we need to be talking uh, at least about the the structure of European security going forward, and clearly NATO would be part of that. If we can get into sustained, serious dialogue with the Russians uh, on that issue, uh, then I think creative diplomacy can find a compromise uh, that meets the minimal security interest of Russia, uh, while not compromising American core, core interest and core principles. Again, that's what diplomacy is about. Diplomacy is not easy. It takes time. It takes creativity. I think the question uh, that we all, all should be asking uh, is whether uh, there will be time for diplomacy or whether the, uh, there's a military logic that will uh, over, over, overtake diplomacy and lead us to a conflict, uh, which, as I've already said, would be catastrophic for all parties engaged. So speaking of sustaining serious dialogue, in a recent article with Politico, um, you label the Biden's administration's insistence to have allies and partners involved in the decision-making process as status. So knowing that Moscow is asking for serious negotiations, mostly between itself and Washington exclusively in an attempt from Russia to validate itself as the other great power in Europe, why do you think the United States is or was, given recent changes, consciously dragging in its allies? Well, you know, the United States, <clears throat> certainly under the Biden administration, has had as one of its priorities, <clears throat> excuse me, repairing relations with our allies after four disruptive years of the Trump administration. Uh, look at the uh, the remarks of the president, the secretary of state in the spring, look at the uh, interim national security strategy guidance that was released in March. This is a top priority. Uh, and it's also clear that uh, given uh, the way we have conducted our relations with our allies in the past, the close consultation uh, is, 
is necessary if you're going to maintain the type of unity you need uh, to conduct successful uh, negotiations with the Russians. The point that I was making in the political article, though, was at the end of the day, uh, the bulk of the serious negotiations are going to be conducted bilaterally between the United States and Russia for very good practical reasons. Uh, the United States and Russia are the only two countries that have the military might to actually impact on the balance of power in Europe. Uh, we're the two countries that are going to have to make the sacrifices or the compromises or rather on deployment of troops, uh, uh, military exercises and so forth, uh, if we're going to come to some sort of uh, understanding that diffuses uh, the current crisis. Yes, we will be talking to our allies uh, during the process, but if you sit down uh, in a room with 30 people, uh, no serious negotiations can be conducted. The best you can hope for is an exchange of views. That's pretty much what happened at the NATO-Russia Council meeting uh, in January uh, of this year. There are times when that's appropriate, uh, particularly uh, when the United States wants to demonstrate to Russia that we have a united front, uh, but that's not a way to make progress. Progress is made uh, in confidential discussions, uh, between a fairly limited number of individuals uh, and countries. Uh, and in this case, uh, as was true throughout most of the Cold War, uh, the main burden of negotiations is going to be carried by the United States and Russia. So recently you've been a strong advocate for a 20 to 25 year moratorium on further NATO expansion into the former Soviet space. Can you explain first of all, your thought process in that, and second of all, the utility of such moratorium, and really describe why this isn't just entailing pushing war to later decades, why this would mean a more long-term progress. Well, first of all, you know, as I said, I mean, the diplomatic challenge <clears throat> is to find a formula that uh, works for both Russia and the United States. Uh, and in the present circumstances, it's a formula uh, that meets Russia's minimal security guarantees. Remember, Russia is asking for a full ban uh, on Ukrainian membership in, into NATO. Uh, and also a formula uh, that is consistent with American principles. Uh, and that principle is the open door, that every sovereign state has the right uh, to choose its alliances and so forth. So you have this conflict between principle on one hand and security requirements. Uh, on the other. Uh, the idea of a moratorium uh, was also uh, based on the understanding uh, that Ukraine wasn't ready for membership uh, in NATO. Uh, and, and, and as I said, any uh, American official and NATO official will tell you that in private. Uh, because of the internal situation uh, in Ukraine, because of the corruption, because of questions about uh, the relationship between uh, civil society and the military and so forth. Uh, Ukraine uh, will not become uh, a member of NATO uh, in the near future and probably decades in, into the future. So by proposing a moratorium, uh, the United States is really sort of facing up to reality uh, of, what is, you know, of what is likely to happen in the real world in any event. Uh, 20 to 25 years was proposed as the length of the moratorium 
partly because, or primarily because I thought that that would be long enough to satisfy Russia's security requirements and short enough for the United States to say credibly that it hadn't abandoned the open door. You know, that said, there's nothing magical about 20 to 25 years. Uh, if the two sides could agree on a different uh, period, that would be fine as, as well. The only task is, or challenge is they agree on, uh, on a period for a moratorium. Now, the other thing that um, would have to be agreed is what does a moratorium actually entail? Uh, what is that? Uh, does it put limits on what the United States uh, could do with Ukraine in the security field uh, or not? Clearly, the Russians uh, would be interested in limiting that to the greatest extent possible, uh, arguing that any uh, security cooperation between the United States uh, and Ukraine is actually preparation for future membership in NATO by, uh, by, uh, for Ukraine. Uh, the United States, on, uh, on the other hand, uh, would want to uh, have some limited or perhaps even more expansive security cooperation with Ukraine, in part because we want to provide Ukraine with the capacity it needs to defend itself, uh, even outside of, of NATO. So there'd be some very tough negotiations on this as well. But it's certainly imaginable that we would come to some sort of agreement uh, where the United States, for example, uh, would agree not to build or occupy military bases uh, in Ukraine, uh, would undertake not to uh, provide certain type of offensive weapons to Ukraine that could strike Russian territory. And it ought to be easy for the United States to do this because we have no plans to do that in any event. Uh, <clears throat> but we would also want to see certain reciprocal uh, uh, steps taken by the Russians uh, to alleviate the pressure that they put on Ukraine, uh, withdrawing certain types of, uh, of offensive weapons uh, away from Ukrainian borders, for example, limiting the number of exercises along the Ukrainian border, a host of other things. Uh, what the details would be, I can't tell you exactly. That's a matter for negotiation. But what I'm trying to do is provide a framework uh, where each country can see uh, that uh, that its needs are going to be uh, are going to be met. Now, the advantage of doing this, and why it's not necessarily kicking the can down the road, is who knows what's going to happen in twenty to twenty-five years. It buys you time to try to sort out things uh, uh, on a more enduring basis. Uh, that's one and two. Uh, twenty to twenty-five years is no small thing uh, in in diplomatic history uh, or in our own. Uh, uh, in our own lifetimes, as far as policymaking is concerned. So if we can give ourselves some time, um, you know, who knows what the world is going to look like uh, in 20 to 25 years. Uh, but what we've done uh, is at least guaranteed that we're not going to have a major military conflict uh, in Europe uh, in the near future. <laughs>